0: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
1: David had to come to grips with the reality that God needs nothing, and you need to realize that too. He is the all-sufficient, ever-eternal, dwelling, powerful, omnipotent King, and he needs nothing from you. What does that mean we don't serve God? There's lots of things we do in response to grace, but grace is all about God needing nothing. That's the foundation of grace.
0: When we've achieved a milestone, it's easy to get caught up in the moment and forget to give credit to those who helped us get to that point. Even the big movie stars experience this when accepting an award. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is reminding us that not one single achievement is possible without God, not one. We're pondering the wonderful iniquity in our relationship with God as we continue our study through 2 Samuel. We're starting with a nostalgic sports reference. Well, let's dive in.
1: Yes, the big news in uh, sports was a uh, boxing match that was scheduled. The uh, newscaster announced this as the first fight between a man and a woman. And I just had to laugh at that. But what I think he meant by that was that this is the first sanctioned boxing match that pits a female against a male. And sure enough, there was some videotape of this gal And she was scary. <laughs> She's hitting a bag really hard, dancing around in the box. I mean, just, it was frightening. Then, of course, they turned the camera to the opponent, who is by profession a, a jockey, at least part-time. He's a nice little guy. And uh, <laughs> n- not only was this gal, uh, not only did she outweigh him, not only was she three inches taller, in her professional boxing career, she had never lost a match. And then they turned to the opponent. And he's never won a match. <laughs> and I kind of muttered under my breath, this just isn't fair. <laughs> isn't going to work out. And I was frightened for this little man. <laughs> sure enough, she won and uh, in a decisive decision. Didn't knock him out. Uh, fortunately, the guy stayed standing, but he got, he got beat up pretty bad. I'm not sure why I shared that with you other than uh, <laughs> it illustrates uh, just one simple fact of life that many things in life just aren't fair. Would you agree with that? A lot of things in life just don't seem to be fair. It's not fair. A lot of things in our personal lives, I mean, 10, 12, 15 things a week we can look at, whether in our workplace, in our family, or in society in general, that just don't seem to be fair, and they're not fair. It's just not fair. A lot of inequities in life. What I'd like to do is to spend a little bit of time focusing on what has got to be the most inequitable thing about your life, the most unfair thing. That is, if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a part of God's family, there is nothing more unfair, there is nothing more inequitable than your relationship with God. God wanted to get that point across, and time and time again in the Bible, he does get it across in a powerful and poignant way. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, I think, was losing sight of this fact. And so God clarified it in which was, in the Hebrew text, the second longest personal revelation of God recorded in the Bible, where God comes down and speaks in first-person terms about some problems he's got with David's plans. And it's all about the inequity that should exist in the mind of every person who calls themselves a child of God. Look at it with me, if you would, in 2 Samuel chapter chapter 7 God teaches Dave a big lesson that he would never forget. Look at it, the historical context beginning in verse number 1. It says after the king was settled in his palace and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies, he said to Nathan the prophet, "Here I am living in a palace of cedar and boy, it's a nice palatial dig and I love this house that we built and all this work that went into it, but when I, when I look out through the window of my nice home here, I see not too far away, here in Jerusalem, the box, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. And I notice that uh, when it's windy, you can see the corners of this tent that we've put it in flapping in the breeze. And it's just an old dusty Tabernacle, And it just doesn't quite seem fair that God would bless me with this wonderful, huge, sprawling mansion. And out there would be God's symbol of his presence dwelling in a tent. And I just don't think that's right. And, and we need to settle the score here a little bit, Nathan. And, and God's done so much for me. And now it's payback time. I, I need to do some things for God and, and kind of make this thing even now. And so he says, uh, you know, what do you think, Nathan? Verse 3, Nathan the prophet commits a pastoral blunder when he doesn't consult God. He doesn't consult his word. He just replies in a very logical, rational, reasonable way. He says, you know what? Whatever you have in mind, it sounds like a good plan. It sounds like a godly idea. Go ahead and do it. Yahweh's with you. God is always with you. He's, He's behind you 100%. Go for it, Dave. Well, the Lord wasted little time in correcting Nathan's counsel He comes to Nathan that night, it says in verse number four, and he says to Nathan, verse five, go tell my servant David this is what Yahweh says. And he asks a rhetorical question. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? Are you the guy to do that for me? Hey, Dave, I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, hey, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? A couple of rhetorical questions here, a couple of devices used in God's vocabulary that basically says, Dave, you're not the guy to build me a temple. And you know, if I really wanted one, I would ask for one. And if I wanted you to build it, I'd certainly make that clear. But don't don't try and (laughs) even the score here. Don't try and build a house for me because of what I've done for you. And in this response from God, he reveals a very basic elemental flaw in the thinking of many people who call themselves followers of Christ. Let me illustrate it further by having you turn to Psalm 50. If you keep your finger here in 2 Samuel 7 and turn to Psalm 50, I want to show you that this is a common mistake that people make. They oftentimes think that in some way they can do for God something that would in some way, perhaps partially, compensate for what God has done for them. That God has provided for my needs. Perhaps I can provide for some of God's needs. God has done good things for me and he's met the kind of crises that I face, maybe I can do something for him that might do something for his life. And that would be good. I could augment him. I could, I could bless him in some way by what I do because, you know, I'm sure he's in need of some, something and I can see some needs here I can maybe get involved in. Psalm 50, drop your eyes all the way down to verse 7 and note how God puts it. Here, O my people... And I'll speak, O oh Israel, and I will testify against you. That's not a prologue you want to hear in one of God's revelations. He's got a problem. He's got a beef with his people. I'm not happy with what you're doing. And he states three simple words that for us we gloss over real quick, but it's a profound statement. I am God. We often forget that. We start treating him like some manager of the universe or some CEO of the, of the cosmos, but he's God. He's more than just the administrator of of the world. He is the all-sufficient one. He is the the immense, eternal, sovereign, perfect one. He's he's God. And then he says in the bottom of that verse, I'm your God. Note this in verse 8. I don't rebuke you, he says, for your sacrifices and burnt offerings which are ever before me. And that's an important point to realize, that God is not saying to David, I don't want you to serve me. As a matter of fact, in God's response to David in 2 Samuel 7, twice God calls David his servant. And 10 times later in the chapters, God... In calling him a servant, David responds to in calling himself a servant 10 times. 12 times in this passage, David, back in 2 Samuel 7, is called a servant. It's not a problem serving God. David's problem was how he was starting to think about service to God. And so in this passage, it says, I don't rebuke you for trying to serve me. I don't rebuke you for bringing sacrifices and burnt offerings. That's not my beef. Look at it, verse number 9. He says, but I have a problem with what's going on in your mind. I have a problem with how you're treating me. Notice it carefully. Let me clarify, God says for you. Verse nine. I have no what? Need? There's the key word. "I have no need of a bull from your stalls or of goats from your pens. If you've forgotten, I'm God. And every animal, verse 10 says, "Of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills, I own it all. I don't need anything from you. I know every bird, verse 11 says, in the mountains, and the creatures of the field, they're mine. I love this irony. Verse 12, look at it, the sarcasm. If I were hungry, God says, what I tell you? I mean, am I going to look you up for a snack if I need something? No. He says, the world is mine and all that's in it. You don't give me anything. You're not going to assist me. You're not in any profound or absolute way going to serve me because I don't have any needs. That's the first important thing for us to note. David had to come to grips with the reality that God needs nothing. And you need to realize that too. Realize that God needs nothing. Zero. Zip. That's why he's God. He is the all-sufficient, ever-eternal, dwelling, powerful, omnipotent king, and he needs nothing from you. Zero. He didn't need David to give him anything. He doesn't need us to give him anything. He didn't need you to sing him any songs this week. He doesn't need you to read your Bible this week. He doesn't need for you to pay attention to the preaching of God's word today. He doesn't need you to do any evangelism this week. He doesn't need you to stand up for righteousness in the marketplace. He doesn't need for you to lead your family in righteous acts this week. He doesn't need you to be a a, a proclaimer or some kind of institution that stands for virtue and truth and godliness. He doesn't need any of that. If God needs anything done, he can do it himself he doesn't need you and he doesn't need any of your stuff he doesn't need it and if sometimes in some perverted twisted way in our minds we start to think that i'm serving god because i'm doing something significant for him because he needs this done and if i don't do it who's gonna do it then you've missed the point god is god and every bit of service that we give him is not meeting a need God may want you to do some things, but he certainly doesn't need you to do some things. In thinking of this, it kind of makes God really big if I put God in his rightful place, and it makes me feel really small. (laughs) He doesn't need me. It made me think of Gulliver's Travels. Do you remember that story? I mean, we always think of Lilliput, his first stop on the journey, but Captain Gulliver gets in his ship and he sails off to another land, and in the next land he visits, the people aren't small, the people are really big. And he tells the story how even the mice in the room that he's set in starts to attack him, and, and there's everything's just gigantic. He talks about how he can't even hardly get up on the bed, it's like scaling a mountain. And he says the plates were like a huge saucer, I could live inside of this, and everything was gigantic. And in the story the maid picks him up and he's just a few inches tall in her perspective and the maid can lift him up and put him from one place and he's just a little tiny three inch person. And I thought to myself, it's much like Gulliver in a land of huge people coming to the realization that I'm really not much help here. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I started thinking about this as I was thumbing through the story, refreshing my mind on this story this week and I thought about a little three inch person in my office while I was working. And I thought how funny it would be to have a little three-inch guy running around on my desk. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if that little three-inch guy really wanted to help me, right? And let's say I needed a, a book from the bookshelf. Oh, I'll get it. Let me get it. You know? I'd be like, you know, thanks and everything, but, you know, I can do that. Or, or you know, maybe I needed a file. Ooh, let me, let me go. You know, it's just like, you're, no, you're not really going to help me. You know, three-inch people need to recognize you're no help, right? You're just, you're nothing. You're a little person. And if that illustration starts to give us a little sense of how small we are compared to how big God is, think about the infinite God of the universe looking at anything you might be able to do for him this week, being impressed with it. Is he really going to be impressed with that? Is he really going to look to you and say, oh, I really need you to do something for me this week? God has no interests in you doing anything that are going to meet his needs. He needs nothing. Oh, and some of you say, oh, yes, yes, he does. And that's why he created us. Some of you are philosophical and theological, and you're thinking, well, God created us because uh, he needs people to love, and he needs people to worship him. Is Is that right? Does he really need that? Think that through. Have you ever wondered in your thinking about God why it is that we have this bizarre definition of God in the Bible as three in one? That he's one God in essence, but he exists in three persons. Have you ever kind of pondered the, the reality of that? That God in his essence is really a divine fellowship and therefore needs no one to love because he has someone to love in the person of the Godhead, the three persons of the Godhead. He doesn't need anybody to do anything because he is in himself a self-sufficient, autonomous, self-supporting, self-loving, self-serving, self-everything because he is everything in all. He is everything he needs. So he didn't create angels so he could have some people to sing him some songs. He didn't create people so he could have someone to love because he was lonely out there in eternity for all time. He didn't do that. He didn't need us, and he doesn't need you. And that is a humbling reality, to let sink in cognitively into our minds and allow that to begin to affect our thinking about ourselves. David thinking for just a few moments that perhaps he could pay God back is the most insulting thing that David could do. It's like you being invited to some posh banquet in Bel Air. Let's just picture this. Some rich friend of yours invites you to some you know, big to-do in Bel Air where they're trying to raise money, and all the you know, who's who of, of, of Southern California are going to be there. All the big shots, and for each plate, each person, it's $8,000. Let's just imagine this. And you got a rich friend who says, you know what, I, I like you. And what I want to do is I want to sponsor you and, and, and a date and your wife or whoever to go to this to this dinner in Bel Air. And anyone who's anybody going to be there, it's going to be great entertainment and wonderful food. And it's going to be the best thing you've ever experienced. $16,000 someone paid for you to be there. And so you've had a wonderful time and a wonderful meal. And your stomach's full. You're feeling great. You've got great feels. just the best experience you've ever had in one night. And as you're walking to leave, by the door, there's the gentleman that underwrote your time to be there and your plate. He paid for it all. There he is, $16,000 he paid for you to be there. And as you're walking up toward the door, you're going to go get your car. You reach into your pocket, and you feel a quarter in there. And you say, hey, buddy, come over here. I just want to tell you I really enjoyed tonight. And you pull that quarter out of your pocket, and you slip that into his palm, and you press that real firm into his palm. You say... I just want to say thanks. Here's a little something for you. Just want to tell you my wife and I had a great time here. Hey, thanks. (laughs) Now tell me how well that would go over with your rich friend. That's offensive. That's not going to help. A quarter? He paid $16,000 for you to eat, and you're slipping a quarter into his palm? That's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. Matter of fact, that's offensive. Do you see? Do you see how that's offensive? We, we you can't we can't possibly pay back with, with a quarter. That's not going to help. Well, God sees that from such an infinite perspective that he says, all your righteousness, it's like, filthy rag, there's nothing to me. It's just stuff I would dispose. It's, it's chump change. There's nothing you can do that would pay me back. So don't even try. What does that mean we don't serve God? There's lots of things we do in response to grace, But grace is all about God needing nothing. That's the foundation of grace. There is nothing I can give God of any real worth. There's nothing. I can't serve him. If he's hungry, he's certainly not going to ask me. If he needs something, he's not going to go to me. He can't get anything out of me he can't get for himself. One more passage, Acts 17. Turn there with me if you would. Acts 17, the apostle Paul finds himself in Athens, the intellectual capital of the ancient world. And there he finds himself with the elite of the elite in the Areopagus, which was a court of men that sat around and decided to discuss the most philosophical and profound truths they ever could. And they even had some authority in that culture to rule on what is good and what is right and what is true. And so Paul ends up stepping into the middle of the Areopagus after surveying the city and seeing that Athens, as it was, actually recorded historically to be a city that was full of temples and idols and all kinds of places to stop and worship these foreign pagan deities. And Paul walks through the town and he sees all this and he sees one that these Athenians had erected called the unknown God. Just in case, I suppose, they missed one, they put up the generic blue wrap God here at the edge of town to where if you want to worship the God of the one that we skipped, you can, you can worship here. And, and Paul says in his heart to himself, I'm sure, you know, these guys have no clue who the real God is. The real God to them is unknown. So he steps up in the court of the Areopagus and he says, you know that unknown God temple you got over here? And that's the God I want to talk to you about because you have no idea what he's like. And he starts with a sermon about the reality of God. Look all the way down in the chapter 17 to verse number 24 and notice what the Apostle Paul says about God. Foundational truths. Here we go. God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord, L-O-R-D. He is the boss. He's the king. He's the sovereign one. He's in charge. He needs nothing. He's the self-supporting, self-sustaining person. He's king of heaven and of earth. And he doesn't live in temples built with hands. You guys are kidding yourselves. Here's the important verse. Look at it, verse 25. And he is not served by human hands. I love this phrase. As if he needed anything. You can't give him anything. You're not going to be able to to pay him back or give him anything. He did not need anything. And then he turns the table and he says, because you can't give him anything because he's the giver of all things. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He ain't going to be the recipient because he's the giver. He gives it all. You can't give back to Him. You can't pay back to Him. You can't in any profound or real way substitute what He's given you with some giving to Him. He can't, it's not a tit for tat. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not you do that for me, I do that for you. It doesn't work that way in Christian theology. Biblical teachings of God have always consisted of a God who needs nothing. And that's an important place for us to start. But secondarily, Paul brings up our second point, and that's where God goes with David in the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 7. He begins to talk about how you can't give me anything because I have everything I need, but I can sure give you a lot. I give men life and breath and everything else, Paul says. Look at it back in 2 Samuel 7. The tables turn from what? God says you can't do for me to what I do for you, David. Look at it in verse number 8. He tells Nathan, now then, tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler over my people. By the way, that's a pretty big cultural slam. There's no lower job than being a shepherd. I mean, you don't need a resume. You don't need skills. You don't need to go to college for that. You just go out with your stick and you you know, keep those sheep from trouble. And as a matter of fact, even the way God puts it, you're just following the flock. I mean, you're just a, a nobody. But I took you from that. Look at verse number nine. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. wait a minute, wasn't I doing that? No, God says, I was doing that. I was giving you victory. I was giving you success. I was giving you everything. You think you're gonna pay me back for that? Never, doesn't work that way.
0: Everything we have is from God and something we can never repay, and we don't have to. All we need to do is accept His free gift of salvation. You're listening to Focal Point in a series called Lessons on Grace from Pastor Mike Fabares. Now to review the study notes or to listen to the complete message, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the sermon called Pondering the Wonderful Iniquity in Your Relationship with God. Well, for this month's resource, we're featuring a timeless classic from the beloved preacher Charles Spurgeon who was known for his thoughtful and precise biblical exposition. It's a book titled All of Grace. It clearly and concisely explains the futility of relying on our own good works for salvation, because we all need God's grace. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our thanks when you make a donation to Focal Point this month. Just call us at 888 three two zero five eight eight five or give online at focalpointradio.org if you prefer sending your gift by mail write to focal point post office box 2850 laguna hills california nine two six five four you might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called focal point partners as a partner your regular support plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future and we're so grateful. So sign up today, won't you, when you call 888 320 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, take a moment to sign up for the weekly email from Mike Fabares. This is a great way to start the new year. Each week, you'll receive an uplifting devotional from Pastor Mike, a refreshing reminder to turn your thoughts toward God, and it's free. Subscribe online at focalpointradio.org. By the way, if you've never let us know that you're listening before, today's the perfect day to connect. When you do, we're gonna send you a special gift. It's a booklet that helps us understand who God is titled Attributes of God. Find it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Druey, inviting you to join us again on Tuesday as we continue learning Lessons on Grace right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here.
1: God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again
0: tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.